This week, Hertz looks to reject vehicle leases. Judge Montali approves BGE debtors' proposed plan funding transactions. Murray moves for approval to sell Javelin interest. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, we'll hear an analysis of Quorum Health's bankruptcy with a focus on the dispute over the company's post-coronavirus valuation. It is Sunday, June 14th. The Hertz debtors filed a motion to reject unexpired vehicle leases for 144,372 vehicles leased from non-debtor Hertz Vehicle Financing LLC, or HVF, in the debtor's U.S. rental fleet which according to the debtors would reduce the monthly base rent payment and result in an estimated monthly savings of approximately $80.3 million. As of May 31st, debtor lessees the Hertz Corp and DTG Operations Incorporated had about 493,748 vehicles under lease with HVF relative to a 2019 seasonal peak U.S. rental fleet of about 567,000 vehicles. The rejection motion says... The debtors, quote, expect that the leased vehicles designated for rejection, quote, will generate limited or no revenue in light of the, quote, dramatic and profound drop in demand for rental cars as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And demand, quote, shows no signs of a quick rebound. As a result of these facts, the motion asserts the debtors, quote, must take immediate action to reduce their fleet and limit the debtors' exposure to potential administrative claims for post-petition rent and thereby preserve the value of their estates for the benefit of their stakeholders. Separately, potentially taking advantage of the unexpected increase in the price of the company's common stock, the Hertz debtors filed a motion seeking authority to enter into an agreement with Jefferies to issue up to 246.8 million shares of common stock through at-the-market transactions for an aggregate offering price of up to and including $1 billion. Quote, recent market prices of and the trading volume in Hertz's common stock potentially present a unique opportunity for the debtors to raise capital on terms that are far superior to any debtor-in-possession financing, the motion states. Judge Mary Walrath approved the, quote, well-argued motion at a hearing on Friday. Quote, it is not clear where the fulcrum is in this case, Judge Walrath observed, moving to a conclusion that the sale of stock will in fact preserve and maximize the value of the estate for, quote, all constituents. The debtors have properly met the business judgment standard, the court continued, noting the cost of property equity issuance is less and therefore better for the estates than the alternative of traditional dip financing. After eight days of confirmation hearings and another argument session on Thursday, the PGE plan remains unconfirmed, though the debtors have made some progress. Judge Dennis Montali on Thursday night entered an order approving the debtors' proposed plan funding transactions in the form submitted by the debtors with the consent of the Official Committee of Tort Claimants, or TCC and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. On Friday morning, the debtors also filed a stipulation resolving their dispute with the TCC over a registration rights agreement governing the Fire Victims Trust's sale of reorganized common stock and a stipulation specifying that the trust will own 22.19% of the reorganized PG&E Corporation. Combined with the plan funding order, these stipulations allow the debtors to proceed with their exit financing and equity capital raising efforts, which the debtors hope to complete by the end of June. 
To that end, on Monday, PG&E announced plans to pursue under, underwritten public offerings of the common stock and equity units as part of its plan to fund its emergence from Chapter 11, subject to market conditions. The expected $5.75 billion of gross proceeds of the offerings of the common stock and equity units are expected to be used together with approximately $3.25 billion of proceeds from private sales of the common stock to fund distributions under the company's plan of reorganization. The debtors filed a related motion for for approval of amended equity backstop commitment documents, which include the amended and restated equity backstop commitment letters and other documents, and for authority to pay an additional backstop commitment share premium as an administrative expense claim. Finally, PG&E announced plans to sell its downtown San Francisco headquarters and relocate to a new office in Oakland and sought code approval to enter into the new lease and purchase option. The PG&E debtors also disclosed in a new filing the members of the board of the organized company. And on Wednesday evening, the Murray Energy Holdings debtors filed a motion seeking approval for the sale of Murray Global Commodities Incorporated's ownership interests in the Javelin Global Commodities Holdings LLP to KM Nuco an affiliate of Javelin Management Services, LLP, for $20 million in cash. The motion states that MGCI's interest in Javelin and all rights and obligations pertaining thereto comprise an ownership percentage of 34%. The debtors asked the court to enter an order entitling KM Newco to the good-faith purchaser protections of Section 363M of the Bankruptcy Code and request that the court schedule an expedited hearing for Monday, June 15th at 10 a.m. The motion argues that the $20 million cash purchase price is the, quote, best available and that the cost of running an additional auction process would not, quote, materially increase that. The filing notes that the debtors and their advisors, in consultation with the ad hoc group of super priority lenders, concluded that the sale price is, quote, fair and reasonable. According to the motion, the ad hoc group of super priority lenders who have perfected first and second priority security interests upon the interests and through their dip and super priority loans support the proposed sale, quote, free and clear of all liens and encumbrances. According to a footnote, the debtors and the dip term lenders are working on a dip credit amendment that would make clear that the proceeds from the proposed sale cannot be used to pay down the dip. Another footnote states that KM Nuco, the entity that will be purchasing the interest, quote, is in the process of being formed under the laws of England and Wales, and the parties expect the entity will be formed before the hearing on the motion. And on the island of Puerto Rico, on Monday, June 8th, the Promesa Oversight Board filed an adversary complaint against Governor Wanda Vasquez in her official capacity. And the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or FF, seeking injunctive relief and a writ of mandamus related to the defendant's, quote, failure and refusal to produce certain documents and information regarding the Commonwealth's procurement and negotiation of contracts to purchase COVID-19 testing equipment and other medical supplies. The complaint cites various, quote, questions and concerns that were raised by press reports. In a statement regarding the complaint, the oversight board said its action is taken to understand the process under which these contracts were negotiated, procured, and approved to, among other things, increase the public's faith in the government contracting processes, and improve the emergency procurement process. Reacting to the complaint, FF Executive Director Omar Marrero defended the Commonwealth's document productions, adding that FF has cooperated in this matter from the onset and the Oversight Board refused an invitation to meet officials with relevant agencies. 
Marrero said the lawsuit, quote, represents an unnecessary waste of public funds by the Oversight Board at a time when Puerto Rico is experiencing a pandemic that has caused a severe impact on the island economy. In a letter to Vasquez, which was released on Monday, the Promesa Oversight Board said the proposed Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority fiscal plan requires revisions before it can be certified as compliant with the Promesa statute. The letter outlines numerous deficiencies with PREPA's proposed fiscal plan and directs the governor to submit a new fiscal plan proposal that, quote, shall address and incorporate each of the items identified herein, along with all necessary supporting materials by June 15th, including a preparation of a debt sustainability analysis as required by PROMISA Section 201B1I. Because of the, quote, uncertain and unpredictable effects of COVID-19 on PREPA and its customers and the current status of the Title III court proceedings, and to ensure consistency with the May 2020 Commonwealth Certified Fiscal Plan, the proposed plan should not reflect the terms of the restructuring support agreement, the letter says. Rather, the proposed plan should reflect the worst-case scenario of the full cost of legacy debt in the next submission and the corresponding rate projections. The Oversight Board on Thursday announced that on June 10th, it had approved a proposed $10.045 billion general fund budget for the Commonwealth for fiscal 2021. It's an increase from $9.6 billion in fiscal 2020 because of investments in technology and public hospitals and the reclassification of special revenue expenditures as general fund expenditures. The board also submitted the budget to the Puerto Rico legislature for consideration and approval, indicating that the impact of the COVID-19 crisis is projected to reduce the general fund revenue by more than 12% to $10.2 billion in fiscal 2021 from $11.6 billion originally projected for fiscal 2020. Further, fiscal 2021 revenues are projected to decline by 5%, compared to projected post-COVID-19 revenues of $10.7 billion in fiscal year 2020, the Oversight Board added. Finally, in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, Judge Richard Hertling vacated the previously entered stay in the ERS bondholders' takings clause litigation against the United States and set a litigation schedule going forward, following the recent opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court upholding the means by which the members of the Promisa Oversight Board are appointed. Other top stories this past week were... Judge Owens finds that Delaware LLC law bars bankruptcy court from granting UCC derivative standing. Serta Simmons enters into agreement with majority of first lien and second lien lenders to reduce net debt by $400 million, provide $200 million new money super priority debt. Apollo, Angelo Gordon, Gamut Capital entities file complaint in New York State Supreme Court seeking to block Serta refinancing transactions. Now turning it over to Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you all, and good morning, and reporting to you from my happy place, so to speak. Anderson, Texas, here in the Brazos Valley, population 222. Little change since 1859 when the good people of the town declined to be connected to the Texas Essential Railroad, and here it is rejoiced in a kind of blissful sort of peace ever since. Anyway, there is, as usual, a lot going on, and as always, let me refer you to our Ford Weekly, released every Monday, for a complete reckoning. And so on Monday, June 15th, it's the end of the grace period for California resources and extraction oil and gas, down at the courthouse status conference in Ultra Petroleum and an omnibus hearing in Hornbeck. Tuesday, June 16th, there's some chunky coupons due from California resources again. 
And also, speaking of the Brazos Valley, Chesapeake Resources has some. Also, Feral Gas and Valaris. There's also an NOL Motion hearing in Speedcast, a KEIP hearing in Diamond Offshore, and a hearing in PG&E. Wednesday, June 17th, DS hearings in Whiting and Dean, and a confirmation hearing in Alter Petroleum. Thursday, June 18th, asset sale hearing in Sanchez for their Mississippi asset. It's that old Tuscaloosa Marine Shale and also Louisiana. Second day hearing in Exide and an omnibus hearing in Windstream. Friday, June 19th, SM Energy. Their exchange offer is due to expire. There's a DS confirmation hearing in Hornbeck and a second day hearing in Unit Corp. And that'll do it for me. And now over for, to our expert legal team, Sean Daly and Karen Lung, to walk y'all through some co- post-COVID related legal issues. Hello, this is Sean Daly from the Reorg America's legal team. And I'm here with my colleague, Karen Lung. We are going to talk about the valuation fight shaping up in the Quorum Health Corporation Chapter 11 cases, which is a little interesting because it's intertwined with the availability and uses of funds under the CARES Act. Uh, Quick refresher, the CARES Act stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. Uh, It was signed into law in late March in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It is designed to provide uh, up to a $2 trillion, with a T, dollar economic stimulus package, the uh, largest ever such stimulus plan in U.S. history. And it has presented a novel context. We'll, we'll see if any future cases have the same issues uh, for Quorum's plan confirmation proceedings. Quorum itself is a provider of hospital and outpatient healthcare services in rural and mid-sized markets across 13 states. The company filed for Chapter 11 in early April with a pre-arranged plan and restructuring support agreement signed up to by funds affiliated with Golden Tree, KKR, Oak Hill, Your Capital, Davidson Kempner, and Goldman. Quorum kicked off a strategic review process in October 2018 and uh, initiated restructuring negotiations with key stakeholders um, prior to the the coronavirus, uh, reaching the deal embodied in the RSA uh, dated April 6th after, quote, of course, months of negotiations. The two voting classes under the plan, First Lean loan claims and senior notes claims have voted to accept the plan already, and the debtors say that all objections to the plan have been resolved except for those from the uh, U.S. trustee and pesky Mudrick Capital Management. Mudrick, a holder of approximately 15% of the debtors' equity, has emerged as uh, perhaps the main antagonist in Quorum's plan process. And just to review the highlights of the debtor's plan very quickly, provides for full cash payment of allowed ABL claims and uh, general unsecured claims would receive unimpaired, well, they would, they would be treated as unimpaired and paid in the ordinary course. First lien claim holders would receive a pro rata share of um, a pay down amount and an exit facility and senior notes claims would receive a pro rata share of 100% of uh, new pre-dilution common equity and uh, litigation trust interests. The new common stock 
to be received by note holders would be subject to dilution from a new common equity raise and related commitment premium and a management incentive plan. To implement the new equity raise, certain consenting note holders have committed to providing at least $200 million in new funds to purchase shares of new common stock of the reorganized debtors. Uh, and certain of the consenting note holders have also provided $100 million in junior new money secured dip financing. Uh, and finally, down at the bottom of the cap stack, existing equity interests would be canceled and extinguished without any distribution. In early May, Mudrick submitted the outline of an alternative restructuring proposal, which of course it described as superior to the debtor's proposed plan, um, arguing that the debtors should pursue the fiduciary out under their RSA to uh, pursue the alternative proposal. However, the debtors in the ad hoc term lender group uh, argue that Mudrick's proposal lacks committed financing, isn't viable, and uh, that the the plan, rather, that they and the debtor support represents the only actionable restructuring option uh, for quorum. Which brings us, uh, finally, to Mudrick's challenge to confirmation. All right. Thanks, Sean. The quorum plan confirmation hearing is scheduled to start this coming Tuesday, June the 16th, before Judge Karen Owens in Delaware. And like you mentioned, the outstanding objections to the plan are from Mudrick and the U.S. trustee. Three equity holders have also joined in Mudrick's objection. And, but you know, by the way, it's not the first time in the case that Mudrick has raised its concerns about solvency and equity recoveries, far from it. Mudrick has repeatedly pressed for the appointment of an official committee of equity holders in the quorum cases, and Mudrick has also lodged significant objections to key relief requested by the debtors, such as dip financing and now approval of the disclosure statement and plan confirmation. Uh, we should also note that separate from the plan objection, the court on Tuesday is scheduled to consider Mudrick's motion for an order directing the appointment of an official equity committee. This is after the U.S. trustee received requests from Mudrick for an official committee three times, and the U.S. trustee has so far declined that request. So you can see that Mudrick's valuation-based challenge to confirmation of the debtor's plan is just the latest step in an effort to make the case for equity recoveries. So one interesting aspect of that effort is the way it is focused on Quorum's receipt of funds under the CARES Act. What kinds of funds has Quorum received and how does that affect uh, valuation? And if you could get into uh, both what Mudrick and Quorum have, have said on those points. Sure. So let's go to the top line number first in terms of funds received. As of last Thursday, the Quorum debtors said that they've received $105.9 million of CARES Act funds to date. Uh, most of this, that's about $101 million, consists of federal hospital stimulus grants. The rest is made up of $3 million in Medicare sequestration revenue, $1.1 million in Medicaid disproportionate share revenue reductions, and 
$800,000 from the Small Hospital Improvement Program Relief Fund. In their brief on Thursday, the debtors also said that they've received $7.7 million in loans, which must be repaid. And that brings us to the significance of these funds for purposes of valuation, according to, you know, Quorum on one side and Mudrick on the other. Like many valuation fights, this one comes down to a battle of the experts. The debtors and Quorum are dueling over their respective valuation analyses. Taking the debtors' numbers first, Quorum's valuation analysis um, prepared by investment banker MTF Health Partners shows an equity value of between negative $477 million and negative $141 million. With a midpoint of negative $309 million, the debtors said in their confirmation reply on Thursday. On the other hand, Mudrick, in a preliminary plan objection from April, said that its valuation consultant, Protivity, had prepared an analysis showing that after you take into account certain CARES Act proceeds and NOLs, the enterprise value of QHC is between $1.64 billion and $1.86 billion. Um, that, gives you, that brings you to an equity midpoint value uh, range of between $343 million and $571 million. And at that time, Mudrick said that this translates to between $10.51 per share and $17.48 per share. Uh, by the way, this was before Mudrick conducted more discovery related to plan confirmation, and it looks like these numbers have been uh, revised downward ahead of Tuesday's confirmation hearing. The debtors' confirmation reply last week indicated that uh, the Mudrick Protivity analysis now calculates a share price range of $5.28 to $9.79. So you can see that we have a huge gulf in valuation between the debtors and Mudrick as the main challenger to the plan besides the U.S. trustee. Thanks. Uh, for context, Karen, relative to Mudrick's equity value estimates of $5.28 to um, just under $10 per share, where is the stock trading? Uh, at approximately $0.20. Cents. It was trading as high as a dollar in early March prior to the full impact of the coronavirus. Great. Thanks. Uh, so let's take a closer look at what Mudrick is arguing about the CARES Act funds. To be clear, Mudrick argues is a, is a starting point that when the debtors filed for bankruptcy with their uh, prearranged plan in April, they were already solvent at that time. Uh, so the argument is that the additional CARES Act funds just further, quote, firmly established quorum solvency and, quote, seriously undermine the, uh, the debtor's proffered plan valuation. On April 29th, Mudrick noted that the debtors had already received $19.2 million in grant funding under the CARES Act the day after the first day hearing, as well as some additional funds. And at the time, Mudrick said it anticipated that the debtors 
quote, will receive at least $159 million and potentially in excess of $230 million of monetary grants as the federal government distributes another $145 billion in funds. $10 billion of the further $145 billion, uh, Mudrick noted, is, was earmarked for rural hospitals such as those managed by the debtors. So Mudrick uses the valuation issue as a jumping off point for several arguments opposing confirmation. For example, Mudrick asserts that the plan can't be confirmed because it wipes out existing equity interests, even though the debtor's total enterprise value puts equity in the money, and because senior note holders uh, are receiving more than a 100% recovery on their claims, which would violate the absolute priority rule. The argument goes that the debtors have artificially lowered the projected recovery for the note holders by failing to value the new equity rights, uh, the premium for these rights, and the uh, litigation trust interest to be issued pursuant to the plan, uh, which are all tied to quorum's overly low overall valuation. And uh, also, it's important to note that Mudrick is challenging approval of the disclosure statement and confirmation of the plan on several other grounds, arguing the plan was not proposed in good faith, uh, that the plan's release and exculpation provisions are contrary to law for a, a host of reasons. Um, interestingly, in the, in the debtor's confirmation brief, they, uh, they show a chart of cases where they... they uh, assert that, oh, here are all these other cases where Mudrick was, was totally fine with um, the exact provisions they're, they're challenging now. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of back and forth in, in this one. Uh, but that's, that's Mudrick. What has Quorum said in response? Well, the debtors maintain that they weren't solvent on the petition date and that receiving certain funds under the CARES Act really doesn't change that. Uh, Something that leapt out at me was the way that debtors' counsel from McDermott, Will, and Emery put it at a hearing in the middle of May. She said, the CARES Act funds can't, quote, create equity value where none exists. Quorum has emphasized that the CARES Act funds come with significant restrictions and argued that these funds are mostly aimed at making the debtors whole for losses and expenses related to COVID-19. So uh, the debtors have been highlighting that they're not entitled to retain these funds beyond such losses. And in light of that, uh, the debtors have indicated that they'll have to return some of this grant money and it would be improper to retain all of the CARES Act funds that Quorum has received so far. So according to Quorum, Mudrick is interpreting the CARES Act in a way that's contrary to the text of the law and all guidance provided by the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, about restrictions on the use of these CARES Act funds. And this is not to mention Quorum's critique of Mudrick's valuation analysis on many other grounds, such as reliance on the 2020 uh, so-called base case budget from late 2019 instead of a risk-adjusted budget that was prepared later. So I see that the debtors quoted the CARES Act in a brief last week, and they point to a document from HHS on terms and conditions stating that CARES Act funds received, quote, 
will only be used to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus, and that the payment, defined term, shall reimburse the recipient only for healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues that are attributable to coronavirus. Quorum asserts that uh, distribution to equity holders or restructuring expenses uh, would not fall within that definition of a payment to, quote, prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus. Right. And there's also this from a frequently asked questions document from the CARES Act Provider Relief Fund, which the debtors quote in uh, their brief last week. Uh, so that that fax document states that payments, uh, quote, shall not be subject to the claims of the provider's creditors and providers are limited in their ability to transfer provider relief fund payments to their creditors. Uh, that document goes on to say a provider may utilize provider relief fund payments to satisfy creditors' claims, but only to the extent that such claims constitute eligible healthcare-related expenses and lost revenues attributable to coronavirus and are made to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus as set forth under the terms and conditions. So Quorum argues um, that in light of the text of the law and guidance from HHS, if the debtors retain uh, the funds that they've received under the CARES Act in excess of COVID-19 related losses and expenses, the government could come back and recoup those funds. Recoupment would be devastating to the business according to Quorum because the company really wouldn't have the liquidity to pay back excessive funds if they spent all of the CARES Act funding they receive given their projected COVID-19 related losses and expenses. Uh, the debtors even say that if they followed Mudrick's improper interpretation of the CARES Act, it could subject them to loss of access to Medicare and Medicaid and subject them to damages under the False Claims Act, which imposes liability on parties that have defrauded the government. So pretty strong words from the debtors there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely strong. Um, it is, I, I found it sort of interesting. Quorum spends a bit of time explaining why they can't retain all of the, the funds they've received under the CARES Act. But then, in addition, the debtors argue that um, even for the sake of argument, if they could retain all of the funds, that still wouldn't um, get valuation to a, a point where equity would have a, a recovery. In, their, in the debtors' papers last week, they said that in light of a midpoint equity value of negative $309 million, even their retention of all funds received under the CARES Act, uh, quote, would not come close to generating value for equity holders. Um, and of course, and I, I think this is, this is fairly consistent with their position throughout the cases, the debtors, you know, are, are very quick to caveat um, that they don't know how much additional CARES Act funding they may receive in the future. Um, but they would need to, let's see, they would, uh, quote, need to receive and retain approximately $284.7 million in additional funding to uh, potentially create any equity value. 
Yeah, I found that interesting too because it's a different, it's a little bit of a different flavor of argument. Not saying that the nature of the funds, uh, because the uses are restricted, could never support an equity recovery, uh, but making the argument that the amount of funds is too low to support equity recovery. You can see why they would want to make, and they did make, both types of arguments, both about the nature of the funds and simply the amount of the funds. The debtors did say in a footnote in their confirmation reply that under guidance from the HHS Provider Relief Fund, additional funding may occur as soon as last week, and that funding would focus on uh, so-called safety net hospitals. This is a $10 billion distribution to be allocated to 700 hospitals, with eligible hospitals receiving at least $5 million. So would it be fair to say, uh, it's, it's obviously a huge issue now, but that this isn't the first time that CARES Act funding has come up in the cases as a significant factor? Yeah, that's right. Uh, now, obviously, the CARES Act funding is a key issue in the valuation dispute that's before the court for confirmation. Uh, But earlier, uh, the court expressed, earlier in the cases, the court has expressed concerns about the debtor's disclosure of information and candor regarding funds received under the the CARES Act. Mudrick actually uh, successfully argued for the rescheduling of the confirmation on this basis. Medrick uh, highlighted that the debtors hadn't disclosed the receipt of over $70 million in CARES Act grants before the final dip hearing on May 6th. This was even though Quorum's CFO and CRO were advised of the debtors' receipt of these funds before the hearing began. So in granting Mudrick's request to adjourn the confirmation hearing, uh, she said that the debtor's lack of disclosure about about the receipt of these funds was what she called a concerning point. And she moved the confirmation hearing from May 22nd to June 16th in order to permit the case parties to conduct discovery and complete briefing. Yeah, the the disclosure point is is a really interesting example of sort of the intersection of SEC filing requirements and the the bankruptcy process, which obviously can move very quickly. Uh, On the same day that the court um, granted uh, Mudrick's request to to, uh, push back the confirmation hearing, I think it was something like an hour or two later, the quorum debtors filed um, their 10Q, which disclosed uh, the receipt of that full amount of funding that uh, you know the, the court had raised concerns that it wasn't disclosed earlier in time. Um, so it's sort of you know outside of the bankruptcy context, it's an interesting point. If you are the company, the, the general counsel, or the CFO in that scenario, um, with something like CARES Act funding, do you do you push out an 8K or do you um, wait as it as it appeared Quorum did to uh, and just throw it in the queue? Uh, But at any rate, we are now on the cusp of the confirmation proceedings, and we'll be listening in to the hearing and providing coverage starting on Tuesday. 
Judge Owens, of course, is conducting the hearing remotely still in light of restricted access to courts because of COVID-19. And she has directed the parties to make opening statements with a, quote, skeleton uh, preview of, of key issues, um, it, particularly on, on valuation. Uh, the valuation dispute in the quorum case brings some of the, uh, the more familiar valuation arguments now to the coronavirus context. I think it's one of the, the first major cases to do so, and we will report back soon on what happens. Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are safe and healthy. See you next week.